Welcome to the Teach Me Lit podcast. I'm Sophie Tuvey and I love talking about books and helping you to revise for English literature and go deeper in the texts you're studying. For which character in Pride and Prejudice do you feel the most sympathy? Now, I love exam questions like this because they are really broad and they allow you to talk about uh, any character that you want to talk about. Um, And there's a number of different ways to approach a question like this. But one of the most important things to remember is the weighting of the marks in this section of the exam. Um, And in the WJEC case, the weighting of the marks is actually on context literary context, social context, historical, cultural context. So any question for the essay really is getting you to link the text to its time and think about how readers might respond at different times as well. And this is really key to the idea of sympathy because there are many contextual factors that will create sympathy for these characters and also that will contrast with perhaps a modern setting and how we read the novel today. So for example with a character you could choose a minor character such as Charlotte Lucas and you could explore her situation as a 27 year old single woman. Um, she's referred to um, as you know her brothers are afraid she's going to become an old maid Um, and that phrase old maid is one of these unflattering terms used for women on the shelf you know when they get past the age of marriageability and there's a lot of sympathy for Charlotte because she is described as very plain Um, in other words she's not very beautiful or attractive in terms of um, what traditionally was known as such in the Regency period. So she's not the most obvious choice for anyone in a ballroom Um, and obviously there's not many other ways you can meet members of the opposite sex Um, and Charlotte is in a position where she doesn't have a lot of fortune herself. Her father's got this title, Sir William Lucas, um, and they've sort of rebranded their house Lucas Lodge but she doesn't actually have any money um, for her own name so she needs to get married in order to secure to secure her own future Um, and obviously when she sees that Collins is looking for a wife and Elizabeth has rejected him she very much maneuvers that situation to engineer um, a proposal um, for, for herself. She happens to invite him over for dinner, she happens to be there um, to encourage his advances and when she sees him coming in the morning to propose to her she meets him as if by accident in the lane um, and encourages his addresses in this way. Now it's interesting because Elizabeth's reaction to the fact that Charlotte accepts this proposal um, I think steers us in what Austin wants us to think Um, because frankly Austin's narrative tells us Charlotte accepts him purely and solely from the disinterested desire of an establishment in other words there's no 
love or real affection here. Um, in fact, it's quite the opposite because Charlotte is fully aware of the idiocy of Collins. It says this in the narrative. Mr Collins, to be sure, was neither sensible nor agreeable. His society was irksome and his attachment to her must be imaginary. But still, he would be her husband. Without thinking highly either of men or of matrimony, marriage had always been her object. It was the only honourable provision for well-educated young women of small fortune. So the narrative makes it really clear um, that there's no uh, real feeling in this relationship. Collins wants a wife. He's been told to marry by Lady Catherine de Bourgh and Charlotte Lucas wants a husband. But I don't think we're meant to approve of this way of approaching marriage. And obviously you could definitely follow then what happens next and obviously Elizabeth goes to visit the Collinses she observes their relationship as it has developed and Charlotte owns that she encourages Collins to be out in the garden as much as possible um Collins is under this delusion that you know Charlotte and I are of one mind all this kind of thing because Charlotte's very good at nodding and smiling and, and agreeing um but essentially this is never going to be a marriage of equals. And I think Elizabeth leaves feeling saddened that that's the choice her friend has made, but she has made that choice with her eyes open. So, um, you know, I think we do feel sympathy for Charlotte. You could definitely argue that there is some sympathy for Collins in that Collins lacks the self-awareness to even realise that he's been manipulated into this proposal and into this marriage. However, Collins is so boastful and self-congratulatory, I think it is difficult to sustain any long-term sympathy for him, especially when he then um, feels very glad that he chose Charlotte when there's all the scandal of Lydia's elopement and he sort of delights in sending a very pompous letter to say that they should throw her off um, their unworthy child and never, basically never speak to her again. So I think our sympathy for Collins is, is much more limited. But I think we do have this sympathy for Charlotte. She's chosen this situation and, you know, there's no going back. In Jane Austen's day, you know, once a woman's married, unless her husband dies, there isn't really any way out of this situation. You can't really get divorced um, and you could potentially live separately, but that brings a lot of social ramifications for you. So marriage very much is a decision that you can't change for most women. It is also the situation which is alluded to in the narrative. As soon as a woman gets married, she's going to start having children and that actually happens with Charlotte. It refers to Charlotte's condition. Um, so clearly Charlotte is pregnant by the end of the novel. Um, and there's a sense in which now she's she's that's going to be her future. That's going to be the next, you know, 15 years of, of her life at least is going to be childbearing. Um, and, you know, there's a... I think Austin definitely had a sense of... Um, sorrow for seeing women go through that cycle pretty relentlessly 
in their childbearing years. Now, if we want to take a more major character, Elizabeth Bennet is of is a really good obvious choice here because we know that Austen wants us to travel, journey through the novel as it were, very much focalised through Elizabeth's perspective. And I think we do readily sympathise with her because she's a woman of energy and spirit and talent and vivacity. And yet she is in this really difficult situation where her father hasn't laid aside any money for her. Um, She's got four other sisters and the estate is entailed to Mr. Collins. So you could basically trace through the whole of the novel. You could sympathise with um, Elizabeth's being proposed to by Collins and under pressure from her mother to accept that proposal. Um, Her proposal from Darcy, which is quite insulting to her family and to her connections, you know, where he says, you know, could you expect me to rejoice in the inferiority of your connections? Um, It's done in quite a harsh way. Um, And we could definitely trace a lot of sympathy for Elizabeth being put into these situations where her family, um, if they knew about Darcy's proposal, her mother would would certainly want her to accept it to secure the future of the family. But Elizabeth's own happiness um, pulls her in another direction and she's true to that desire for just marrying for love uh, and not bowing to societal pressure and I think as a modern reader we definitely really relate to Elizabeth um I think the original readers definitely loved Elizabeth as a heroine um but I think even more so as modern readers we can see these kind of proto-feminist ideals of a woman's right to choose um her pathway through life um and you could definitely Uh, outline the way that Austen perhaps was influenced by um, proto-feminist thinkers such as Mary Wollstonecraft um, in the way that they thought about a woman's right to to assert her own ideas and to choose. You could also however argue that Elizabeth's mistakes um, give us more sympathy for her as well because she's very human and flawed. We watch her meet Wickham, um, we watch her make a lot of judgments about Darcy which later are revealed to be untrue and we really watch her fall under Wickham's spell as he um, gives her this story about how Darcy has um, wronged him and I think original readers would certainly be aware that what Wickham discloses to Elizabeth on pretty much their first conversation is really inappropriate Um, you know, for somebody you've barely just met to tell you all this personal history um, and about their financial situation, about, um, you know, a wealthy um, family on the edge of the aristocracy like the Darcys. For Wickham to say all of this really was was too much too soon and should have given Elizabeth a warning bell straight away that there may not be um, absolute truth in what he was saying. But because it fits so well with Elizabeth's own prejudice she does accept what Wickham says at face value and that's why Darcy's letter to her in chapter 35 is such a a sharp revelation when she realises that she was wrong but I think that really helps our sympathy with Elizabeth because we can see her accept her mistakes and ultimately as a Bildungsroman um, and that's literary context here we are watching a character develop and overcome their flaws and move from 
um, innocence to experience uh, from immaturity to maturity. And I think that's really powerful in, in bringing our sympathy. And then, of course, I think we have all this sympathy for Elizabeth as well, because having realised all these flaws, um, there's now all these barriers between her and Darcy, which as a woman in Austin's day, she couldn't really remove. So um, there's the fact that Lydia runs off with Wickham and that becomes in her mind a huge hurdle for Darcy ever proposing to her again. And by the time she's realised that she has feelings for him, um, you know, she she realises that for him to marry her would then make Wickham part of his family. Um, and she thinks that, you know, it, it's too late for that. Um, then when Elizabeth finds out that Darcy has um, so generously gone to London, found Lydia and Wickham, paid Wickham to marry Lydia and sorted that whole disastrous situation out um, and done so anonymously without demanding thanks or praise from the family. Elizabeth's then desperate to thank Darcy and to repair the kind of bridge between them but again as a female um, she doesn't really have the opportunity to do that and there's a number of scenes where Austin shows us Elizabeth's frustration. She's she's in a room and Darcy's in the room as well, but they're kept apart by these kind of social rules, you know, of, of who's playing cards with who. And she can't just go up to Darcy and strike up a conversation. Um, and it's only really when um, Lady Catherine de Bourgh visits Elizabeth and then Darcy realises that Elizabeth's feelings have changed that they're able to um, repair that that distance between them um, but there's that sense of a female disempowerment that Elizabeth longs to be able to march up to Darcy and tell him exactly what she feels now and what she thinks and she just can't and that's what we call the boundaries of decorum in Austin's day you know women didn't talk about their feelings um, they didn't speak unless they were spoken to they didn't initiate conversation um, they didn't go and um, seek someone out in a room you know they very much sat still and quiet and the incident with Lydia running away also shows them sat at home just waiting for a letter to come with news again it builds our sympathy particularly as a modern reader looking at the story thinking how frustrating that must have been the lack of agency the the lack of ability to change your situation and certainly something we could really um, empathize with I think generally, you know, the female characters of the story, we can sympathise with their powerlessness. Um, and that's a theme that, that comes across. And even for a character like Lydia, who is clearly wild and inappropriate in her behaviour. And I think Austen makes that really clear. But I think there's that clear naivety she's got. She runs off with Wickham, assuming he's going to marry her. And of course, he's he's got no intention of it. And Lydia doesn't even really realise the danger she's put herself into. I think we do feel sympathy for Lydia in that scenario. We feel sympathy for Jane when, you know, Bingley um, suddenly leaves without a second glance at her or, or, or a letter of explanation. And she's left in the lurch. And again, she can't do anything apart from go to visit her aunt and hope that Bingley comes to see her. But he doesn't. Um, it's that helplessness of... Um, not being able to take control of your life um, and I think the female characters show that even Mrs Bennet who obviously is a very comic character and not a character we can take entirely seriously 
with her nervous fits um, and exclamations and hyperbole. However, that comes from that female powerlessness, doesn't it? Her over-the-top nature is reactive of the fact that she's married to someone who has very little patience with her. She doesn't understand him. He doesn't understand her. um, And she just can't deal with um, basic situations. And so she just throws these hysterical fits and um, goes and stays in her bedroom. But I think even then we do have some measure of sympathy for her that she's completely powerless to do anything about the situation of Lydia anyway. There is certainly an argument as well that you could trace Darcy's character through the novel and look at how we have a lot of sympathy for Darcy. He's um, a person of high social stature. People, um, he has a lot of responsibility as a landlord and landowner and people are looking to him and people are judging him wherever he goes, such as in chapter three at the um, Meryton Assembly. When he first arrives, everyone says, oh, wow, he's got 10,000 a year. He's much more handsome than Bingley. But then when he doesn't say anything and doesn't dance with anybody, um, then they will say, oh, well, you know, he's really proud and disagreeable. We, we don't like him. Um, and there's that sense in which he he is subject to public opinion in that way. He's under scrutiny. He's in the spotlight. And I think we have sympathy for the way that he's misjudged because he is an introvert. He doesn't like social situations. Yes, he could make more effort and Austin does make that clear. But I think we do have sympathy for Darcy. And then the fact that Darcy listens to Elizabeth's uh, strong reproofs to him at the first proposal in chapter 34 and then proceeds to change. And when he bumps into Elizabeth at Pemberley, he welcomes her aunt and uncle. He invites the uncle to come back fishing he goes out of his way to introduce Elizabeth to Georgiana, his sister. Um, and then, of course, he goes off to London and rescues Lydia. Um, and that that goes above and beyond, you know, anything that Elizabeth would ever have expected from him. So I think there's a there's sense in which, you know, Darcy doesn't even take the credit for, um, for all of these things that he does. And that definitely increases our sympathy for him as this kind of misunderstood character the kind of the real hero of the story that really only Elizabeth really appreciates his heroism and the depth of what he's done so with a question like this is a number of characters you could explore and I think uh, it might be wise to explore um, one or two characters really tracing through the novel but always linking it to the time you know how did they circumstances at the time the novel is written affect their choices and affect their lack of choices in some cases too particularly with the female characters and then thinking how modern readers respond to these characters you know do we have more sympathy with them because of our comparative freedom of choice and independence and our freedom from social structures and social manners and decorum or perhaps you could take it down the line of we sympathise because we relate to social structures. We all relate to social pressure, whether it's through social media or other ways um, that technology gives us. We can relate to that idea of people's expectations upon us. Um, and so I think there's a lot of scope to explore those things. But the key is to explore it in relation to the context and with textual support. If you've enjoyed this podcast and found it helpful, please hit subscribe and share it with a friend. 
You can find me on Instagram and Twitter. Just search for Teach Me Lit. I'm always open to requests, so if you want me to talk about a text you're studying, get in touch. Thank you for listening. See you next time on the Teach Me Lit podcast.